G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. This Crunch Time podcast proudly brought to you by iPrimers. Make the right NBN choice with iPrimers, your NBN experts. Call 131101. Welcome to Footyology with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Footyology podcast, building up some serious momentum as we head into the finals. I'm Rowan Connolly. With me, as always, my sparring partner, Mark Fine. Good day, Fine. Hey, Rowan. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, another interesting round of footy. What did you make of it in a nutshell? Adelaide and Sydney played a finals-type game to kick us off. And they did. Both look well-suited to the claims that they could win the premiership. GWS win, but more importantly, guys like Deledio get more game time and look more comfortable. So I think we were right last week. The winner comes from those three. Now, uh, just before we get into it, very quick uh, thing I've got to pick you up on from last week. I used the word ephemeral, and I was quite happy about using that. It's not often I dip into my thesaurus. And you picked me up on it, but I think I had the definition right. I think it means lasting for a brilliant but short period. Yeah, I hope you weren't referring to footyology. Uh, definitely not, finding. I think we're on a winner here, and uh, the punters keep telling us we're doing the right thing. But uh, look, it's not often I get to wax lyrical, so I just want to bask in the glow of that. No stuffing around. Let's get straight into it. On footyology, that's a wrap. Okay, well, there's absolutely no doubt what the most important game of the weekend was, uh, potential grand final preview, and it certainly lived up to that billing Friday night, Adelaide Oval, Crows and the Swans, what a ripper. Yeah, you know what, we could analyse the game till the cows come home, but that very simple, have a look at the scoreboard and take your opportunities, is what got the Swans over the line, 13-5 to 11-14. Now, 11-14 is not bad kicking, but 13-5 is good kicking, and they mm. were rewarded with the four points. So it was definitely one of those games, wasn't it, where obviously someone lost, but I don't think you could come away from that and argue in any way that Adelaide was any less a flag chance than they were beforehand. No, not at all. This is a game that I always thought was going to be very tight based on their game there last year, which was important and close as well. Mm. And they've got, a, they've got a feel to me like West Coast and Sydney had in those mid-2000s, not just the two grand finals. Remember, they went through a period where they just couldn't be separated. And I now get the feeling when Adelaide and Sydney play, being two or three goals in front only means that the other team's going to kick the next two or three goals. In actual fact, if, you, if you're an Adelaide um, focused and looking for pluses, I would have thought a big one was the midfield standing up, you know, despite Sloan again being kept quiet. And th- that's been the big improvement in them for me in the second half of the season. There was a period there where we were saying, you know, no Sloan, no Adelaide. Well, they've clearly got past that. And the uh, I know we, we wrap Matt Crouch up every week, but geez, he's a gun. And the other support players, you know, his brother, Rory Atkins, um, Richie Douglas, you know, they've all come to the party. Their forward line was pretty well held by the Swans' defence, but, you know, I looked at that and I thought um, even more so, you throw GWS in, but I said last week I think only three sides can win the flag and nothing I've seen this weekend makes me alter that view, although, having said that, uh, Richmond incredibly impressive over in uh, Perth in the last game of the round. Yeah, look... Re-Adelaide's forward line, they were well held, but by this professional mid uh, back line that's aided by the midfield, I still love the way Taylor Walker is now taking the game on as a true centre-half forward. He presented powerful. It didn't go his way on occasions, but he's powerful. And isn't Mitch McGovern the ace in the pack, or joker in the pack, because he's wonderful overhead, but boy, is he quick. So you've got this third tall forward with real leg speed. Yeah, no, he's a gun. Unfortunately, uh, BT used that phrase, gecko, hands enough for it to stick with me. And now every time I hear his name, I think gecko. Do you see that similarity? No, not No, really. I don't either. 
Isn't Buddy Franklin fascinating? Again, in a big game, he proves to be the difference. That goal was just superb. Touched he was the, always going to kick it, wasn't he? Touch the kale hookers about it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Isn't it amazing that one of the game's greatest players over the last decade, and still, if you lined up every player in the schoolyard and had first pick, there's a real case to say you'd pick Buddy first. Mm. There are two elements of the game he's actually noticeably poor at. He's a Substandard overhead mark. Yeah, although he nearly took a, a ripper. Nearly is yeah. his his yeah, yeah. trademark, and he can't tackle. Mm. It, that's why he used to bump so often. He cannot. He but he does. He applies so much pressure for a big guy. He really applies pressure, but he just cannot stick a tackle. Mm. So he's not allowed to bump anymore. He's took, taken that out of his game for obvious reasons. Too dangerous, too big, too likely to get the head. He does apply great pressure, though. He is the biggest, meanest, most brilliant half-forward flanker you've ever seen. You know, I reckon the one thing missing from his CV is a fantastic grand final. Like, he, he's done... 2008, he almost played a decoy role when Hawthorne won. 2013, it was Jack Gunston who was the star of the show, not him. He played well for Sydney in 2014, but they got smashed, so it, it really didn't amount to much. Um, 2012 was the one because he they just kept going to him, and he could well, he kept won, kicking points. He could have won them the game, but yeah. he, he didn't. Win so them the game. I mean, why I bring that up is I, I just think you know we know he loves the big stage. I reckon that would be really grating at him a bit, don't you think? I, I just think if they make it. I'd be quietly confident maybe this would be the year Buddy turns on. It turns it on big on grand final day. And it'd be great to see because he just is one of those players that when he's got the ball or he's got some space, you just move forward in your seat no yeah. matter who you're batting for. You know, one of the things I really like about this season, I was thinking tonight, is that there's great stories, I reckon, around several potential premiers. Sydney. No sides made a final series after being zero and six. You know, we're seriously talking about them winning the flag. Adelaide, um, you know, and it, people sort of forget, but it's it's just over two years that they lost their coach in the most tragic possible circumstances, and and they've rebounded and made finals not only that year but last year, and now this year been on top of the ladder. They're a remarkable footy club, and I'd be wrapped for them to win a flag. GWS, you know, okay, perhaps no romance about that as such, but a club winning its first flag is always uh, a special occasion. And I think we should talk about the Tigers. I touched on them just before, but, gee, they're in a a strong position. I mean, unless they screw up royally against St Kilda, they're going to finish top four. They're going to have a double chance. I still don't think they're quite in the class of those other three. But having said that, um, you know, they lost to Sydney by, what was it, eight or nine points. They lost to GWS in the last minute when they shouldn't have, and they beat G- GWS a second time. So against those three power sides we're talking about, their record's as good as anyone's, and they're really impressive today. That was easily their highest score for the season. I've still got my concerns about their forward setup. I just think in the heat of finals, you know, one key forward perhaps isn't enough. You need a sort of a bailout option. But, you know, look, if they can keep winning their share of the ball and, and their small forwards can keep applying the amount of pressure they do in that forward 50, they've got to be a reasonable chance. And and how great a story would a Richmond Premiership be? I agree. You have a look at that team. I think a lot of people mm. had a look at the Bulldogs team even before this season and said it's just amazing. Some of the names in that team, that that is a Premiership side, is amazing. Well, Richmond trumped that for mine. They are in apart from their headline acts, they are a collection of vastly improved players, first-year players, or guys that have been written off as footballers that are made good. So it would be amazing. I just wanted to... Just well, hang on, just before you go on, though, I, I'm really glad you said that because I was looking, doing some number crunching tonight and there are real similarities between the Bulldogs of last year and Richmond of this year, and, and personnel is a, a main one. You're quite right, but even in terms of numbers. So last year... The Bulldogs were ranked third for fewest points conceded, but only 12th for points scored. And the only side of the last 20 years to have had as low a ranking for points scored was Sydney in 2005. But that's exactly where Richmond are at the moment. They're 12th for points scored. But 
like the Bulldogs, really strong defensively. They're second for fewest points against. Like the Bulldogs, who last year were first for contested ball and second for clearances, the Tigers are third for contested ball. And um, perhaps one thing you would say is that the Bulldogs had that real uh, ace up a sleeve with that creative handball they had. Richmond doesn't have any sort of unique facet of the way it plays footy, but it just backs its brilliance in midfield via Martin Cochin, um, and and it plays a direct brand, and then it really puts some heat on inside that forward 50. So there are obvious similarities between those two sides, and that's why I think of any side beyond those top three we're talking about, they are the most likely to win a premiership. It would be a magnificent story. Now, I I don't want to be a... um naysayer or somebody who always looks to the negative, but if they finish fourth, which they may well do... Mm. Go to Adelaide. They go to Adelaide, yeah. and if they lose that, they could face Sydney the week after. Yeah, it's not good. Now, straight sets for a team that hasn't won a final under Damien Hardwick <laughs> would be, in the court of public opinion, a hanging offence, and you wouldn't just you just wouldn't want to be a Richmond supporter listening to talk back if that was the case. It would be... Harsh judgment indeed. That's a fair point, but don't you think they'd much rather be having a double chance than staring at a fourth elimination final in five years? That's what it's all been about. Give us a double chance, and we'll show you what we'll show you our true medal. Because they have not been a team this year that's looked like losing two in a row. Well, it's funny. You go back. The last time they won a final was two thousand and one. Uh, when it was just like that. They had the double chance, got blown away in the qualifying final against Essendon, then beat Carlton in the um, the first semi before bowing out in preliminary final day. I mean, I, I hope it's not like that because they deserve better. And, and you know, I, I still look at them talent-wise and think they're not quite at the level of the three we're constantly talking about. But, like I said, they've been close. They've beaten JWS. They've been within a kick of them a second time and been within a kick of Sydney. The only side that smashed them, or St Kilda did, only two sides have smashed them, St Kilda, which was clearly a very off night, and Adelaide. And even that Adelaide game, you know, they started well. It was really the second half that killed them. I want to throw up another one here because I reckon they deserve to be talked about too, Port Adelaide. Now, it's interesting, and I've been guilty of this too. I, I sort of haven't given them much consideration in terms of higher honours, but you look at their profile, I'm well armed with stats for this one. They're second for points scored. They're third for points against. They're seventh for contested possession. They're sixth for clearances. So, that you know, those last two figures aren't great, but they're competitive. And scoring both for and against, they're strong offensively and defensively. So... Look, their record against sides above them isn't great. They've played five and lost five, but they did push to Geelong, uh, pushed along within a couple of points down at the Cattery. They led GWS at three-quarter time. The first showdown with the Crows was only, I think, 17 points. So why is there virtually no one, do you think, who gives them a chance of winning the flag? Look, I think what the problem with them has been that, as you say, they've struggled against teams in the eight and against better sides. Their back line, now I know they beat Sydney round one, but we know Sydney were ill-prepared for the early part of the season. Their back line is game, but it's not tall. Who's their tallest defender? Um, would it be Jonas? Maybe. Clury? I'm saying they're all around the same height. They're yeah. six-foot-three type players. Six it's certainly three, a low-profile defence too, six isn't Six-foot-three, six-foot-four, maybe. Yeah. And I fear for them against Sydney, for example, who've got... A big, tall profile forward line. Yeah. Tippett is now playing useful football. You've got Sam Reid. He's marking and kicking well. Adelaide Jenkins can take full toll of that back line. I fear for that. And I also fear for their reliance on... They seem... Now, this week against the Doggies, it was, you know, all roads lead to Dixon. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Some weeks it's all roads lead to Gray. Mm. Uh, they need to lower their eyes a bit and use all their forwards mm. because have a look at their scoring and their wins and they seem to be quite reliant on a star turn each week. Well, I'm just trying to think, who are their other forwards? Well, they've got Wingard down there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they'll keep playing the kid Todd Marshall, but they need to – that's it. If They don't really have other forwards, but they, they will have six nominal forwards come the finals and – I just think it's um, much harder in the finals 
against better defences, and that's, what I think, where they fall over against teams that have a great defender, tall and small. They're easily short-circuited up forward. I was thinking, watching that game, that perhaps we underestimate their midfield too. I think their midfield's been pivotal this year, and it's been incredibly consistent. And Travis Boak, you know, like he has his ups and downs, but in He's the... a lot of downs this year. That was a much better game oh, by Travis Boak. He was enormous he in was, that third quarter. Yeah, look, he was great, but he started the game as he has sort of most of the year. A couple of sort of flashes in the play, didn't get his hands on the ball, and then he just grew in confidence because the ball... He started to win ball. Mm. Um, I don't know about his running ability. You, you'll find that most of what he did yesterday was quite brilliant, but he doesn't do a lot of overlap play. Mm. And th- that is sort of the bread and butter for a, a midfielder. My, of his point, type. my point, though, is add him to Wines, who is incredibly consistent. Yep, Jared Pollock, who I really like. And, yeah, look, he's a bit more of an outside player, but well, you well, need that. You know, he was quiet in the first half yesterday, and in that last quarter he was outstanding. And uh, Brad Ebert. On who, the weekend, I should say. Uh, Brad, Brad Ebert, who I think uh, he did a lock, he did a on Pelly and did it really well. Now, as a quartet... You know, Boke, Wines, Pollock, Ebert. There's not led too by, many better. Led by Ryder. Uh, exactly. Well, yeah, throw that in. A Ruckman and four on ballers. There's not too many better combinations than that going around, is yeah. it? The problem is that they have thinned out at the bottom six all year, <clears throat> but they played some different names this week. So we didn't get Young on the on the turntable, and it's it's been Young and Archie and mm. a- yeah, Eamon played. Jake, a- Amon, I thought, played all right. He played all right. Jake Need was great. Now, mm. he's, he played up forward. His history tells us that he doesn't put a lot of good games together, but he'll play again next week and maybe into the finals. And they played a couple of youngsters in Bonner and Marshall that added something. And, yeah. you know, Dougal Howard, now he was really good as well. So Houston got injured. Had so a problem. He did have a problem, but they put his problem back in, dislocated his shoulder, and they put it back in. So There was an obvious line there for someone with Houston playing at Mars Stadium, wasn't there? <laughs> I just couldn't quite... I couldn't quite work out what it was. You just uh, hit on another point too, um, which I forgot to mention before, consistency. They haven't won more than two games on end at any stage this year. Yeah. So I think, you know, being able to do it four weeks in a row against the best opposition, that's going to... Yeah. Now, you know we haven't talked about here? It's uh, the side that's third on the ladder. Now, I've got a few thoughts about the Cats. Um You know, look, they've been very steady. What worries me about them, why I don't sort of put them in the Adelaide GWS Sydney class, I think they've turned into a solid team, but they're not spectacular enough. And if you have a look at their results through the course of a season, this is really interesting with their scoring. They're still uh, the, I think, third highest scoring team in the competition, but that's all off the back of what they did early in the year. First five games of the year, they topped 100 points every single week. Since then, in 16 games, they've only done it three times. So their scoring has dried up, and we look at we're sort of blinded by the brilliance of Dangerfield and Selwood when he's there. But you know, and Duncan's had a really good year too. But I just don't think there's as much of a an X factor about them as the others, and that's why we always talk about Stephen Motlop needs to stand up. They need Nikai Cockatoo back. But even with those two. I just, there's no, I get used to, I've been used to Geelong sides, or we all have, when they're at their peak, having a real spark about them. There's no spark about this side. I reckon they're workmanlike, but they really lack that sort of push over the cliff. Do you agree with that? Yeah, they've got a huge problem. They do not apply anywhere near enough forward line pressure. Have a look at their numbers, some of their players in their forward line, because they don't have really sharp, small forwards who generally apply that pressure. Look, that forward line relies on a different sort of makeup. Now, <clears throat> would you play Daniel Menzel? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't. Really? And I've got a feeling the coach doesn't like him. He's been. But he is a potential X factor, I reckon. Yeah. I think Chris Scott has worked him out, and they struggle when he plays in the forward line. So, what's his problem? He's had 18 tackles this year. He mm. averages 1.1 tackles. So per not game. enough defensive pressure. Well, he's a small to mid. So he's in that team. He's the small to mid forward. Mm. He's had the same number of tackles as Wiley Buzzer has had. Really? Yeah. Wiley Buzzer's played 12 less games. Okay. No, it's a good call. It's it's unacceptable. He had, in fact, there's one game Menzel had five tackles in. So for his other. For the rest of his games, he averages less than a single tackle a game. Okay, but who do you replace him with? Well, they don't have it because they just don't have enough 
small forwards who could apply pressure. You like know, I'm thinking Darcy Wang or something Lincoln like that. Lincoln McCarthy maybe, but they got injured. Or, mm. They just don't have it. That's where they need to desperately need to find somebody. When Hawkins comes in, he doesn't tackle when the ball hits the ground. Yeah. Taylor is good aerially, but no good on the ground. They, and finals is all about ball retention in the forward line. That's a huge part of it. They simply don't do it. And as a result, they're going to be in big trouble. Okay. Well, let's quickly zip through uh, the rest. Now, if we accept Bulldogs and St Kilda are still statistically a chance. Leave them out of it. Okay. Worry. So we'll leave them out of it. Let's talk quickly about Melbourne, Essendon and West Coast. Now, I'm convinced none of those three teams now can do any damage beyond week one of September. Melbourne and Essendon have won their last two games and couldn't have been less impressive in doing so. Yeah. And West Coast Eagles, well, they've just got so many problems in the midfield. They've got, they've got no hope. Well, you talked about their tackling last week. They're uh, second last for tackling on the differential, yeah. so you hit the nail on the head there. Um, their other numbers are similarly unimpressive. They're 15th for contestable. They're 16th for clearances. You can't win a seriously threatened to win a flag oh, with numbers like that. They've got three guys who are a huge chance to be in the All-Australian team. Kennedy, McGovern and Yo. Yeah. And around them are some of the some of the slackest footballers going around. We knew going into yesterday's game that Josh Hill and Lewis Jetta had seasons that have them marked for probably delisting because they're just not hard enough. Mm. So they had to go out yesterday and provide some spark. You know what they did? confirmed everybody's doubts about them. They were both insipid. Okay, last one. Uh, Bombers, much as I'd like to see them uh, be competitive in September, I'm not convinced they can be. I thought it was a fairly pedestrian win up on the Gold Coast. Leaking too many scores now. And what's interesting is early in the year they were having a lot fewer inside 50 entries, but their efficiency was fantastic. That's completely switched around. They've really upped the ante for... Scoring opportunities, but they're starting to butcher them, both in terms of conversion, but even getting the scoring opportunities. I mean, Joe Danaher's, he really felt the pinch um, against the Suns. I thought they defended him really well. But, you know, now they've lost Fantasia. Now it looks like they've lost Green. Um, Tipper was pretty reasonable, but they're, you know, they're just, they're, they're running out of options there, I think. And I just don't think they're good enough. As the season was panning out, Essendon became clear. Essendon need their best 22 on the field. Yeah. And Fantasia is a big part of that. I mean, the guy's sort of surviving. David Myers plays every week, but mm. he doesn't do enough. I mean, Yeah, well, Travis Collier was in that boat until last week, but he's probably going to have to come back now to replace Green. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing about him, there's a, a school of thought that Essendon's best can worry anyone. I dispute that. Uh, I mean, they should have beaten Sydney in the end, but Sydney dominated that game for three quarters. They've lost to Adelaide very comfortably twice. They've lost to Sydney and they've lost to GWS. So I don't see the evidence that against the, the very best, they're good enough. Uh, Their very best is speculative because it's forward handball running hard forward of the play with a number of links. Which now you that, can't do in finals. You can't do for more than... Uh, you know, you just can't do it for very for very long. Mm. And against good teams, probably not at all. So, yeah, they're best at beat anybody, but it's it's rarefied air. Okay, last one in this segment, because we need to cover off on it, Bulldogs. Assuming they don't make the eight, they'll be only the second Premier in nearly 20 years to miss the following year's finals, Hawthorne being the other one in 09. There's an obvious link there that I think is absolutely pivotal to them missing out, and it's two teams that achieved success far quicker than anyone anticipated and it makes the business of backing up even harder because if you're not prepared for it, psychologically it becomes too much of a burden and I think they've fallen victim to exactly what Hawthorne did in 2009. Your thoughts? Yeah, look, I agree. I think there are some differences and probably the personnel, well, we'll see in the future, but personnel differences uh, that they have a lot of blue-collar type of footballers and who got the very best out of themselves in 2016. Mm. But the star factor's not there. Certainly in the key positions, they are found sorely wanting. They've got no tall backmen. They got minced by Dixon on the weekend. And their forward stocks, to rely on Stringer, it is a, he is a, a lively jack-in-the-box type forward. But even into last year's finals, there had been some tapering of form and he sort of found the ball when it mattered. This year with injury, it hasn't existed at all. And I'll tell you something else. Luke Beveridge 
loves swinging the changes, and he mm. rotates players, and he drops a lot of players. Mm. Now, in 2016, when you were dropped at the Bulldogs, the, there was a burning desire to be part of the team because you wanted to prove yourself to the coach, and then as the season rolled on, you wanted to be part of potentially something that was very great, even playing in finals. And this year, you drop players, and they say, hang on, I'm a premiership player. Mm. What, what on, what, I'm playing in the VFL. I'm fighting to get in a team that's struggling. And I, I was in the bloody... I made the grand final last year. I've already proven this to him. So second and third on, time on this merry-go-round does not have has not had the same effect as it did first time around. The one positive they have, like Hawthorne did, is that their relative youth. Bob Murphy aside, and he's retiring now anyway. So, you know, it's not the end of the road for them as uh, they've got a few years up their sleeve to do something about it. And what Hawthorne were able to do was go cherry-pick players that they needed. So yep. they got some great players, you know, key defender, Brian Lake, etc. We'll see, because they want to do it as well, the Bulldogs. We'll see if they can land... Jake Lever and, and cherry pick exactly what they need. That's that'll be interesting. Okay, I've only got one more thing to add to this discussion. That's a wrap. On footyology, hot or not. Okay, we all know how this segment works. No mucking around, Finey, You're up first. I'm starting with a knot. It's a bugbear of mine, and that is the score review system, as done by the AFL, is unprofessional, as was proven again on the weekend. It has to be uniform at all grounds. So if it's a goal line decision at the MCG, there's cameras on the goal posts, there's three or four different angles, and you get a fairly definitive idea as to whether or not the ball's crossed the line or hit the post. Go yesterday to Mars Stadium at Ballarat. There was a disputed kick by the Bulldogs, and it was bouncing towards goal. The defender said it hit the post. We had two angles. The camera that we saw it with originally, and one from behind the goal, if it's if it's not uniform, it's unprofessional and the AFL need to get it right. Okay. I'm starting with a hot and it goes to Essendon's David Zaharakis. Has had a fantastic season. In fact, right now, I reckon he would be leading the best and fairest. Start of a season in pretty ordinary form. In fact, up until about round eight, he was really struggling. He was getting sort of mid-teens possessions, having zero influence. The Geelong win, I think, round eight, that really turned it around for him. Since then, uh, how many games have we had? 15 or 14? He's had fewer than 22 disposals in one game. Um, 38 against the Suns, but not just the numbers. You know, when he gets the ball, he he carries it. He runs and carries. He's a long kick of the footy, um, so he pumps the inside 50 entries in there. He's been magnificent, and he's been a player who's regularly been accused of being, you know, a bit timid, you know, doesn't exert himself on the contest, goes missing. I reckon he's really got past that. And and this has been, you know, look, he's had other great seasons, but I reckon this is arguably the best season he's had. So hats off to Zachary. It's been a wonderful effort. I'm going to throw in a hot as my second choice. And it's a big, raw-boned kid with a fantastic name, Wiley Buzzer for Geelong. Uh, The kid's actually got what it takes to be a really good AFL footballer. He's got a big, long shoe on him, so he kicks the ball a long way, goes for marks, tackles when the ball's on the ground. But most importantly, for a key forward, when he takes his turn in the ruck, he's a really good body ruckman. He actually embarrassed Zach Smith yesterday. Zach Smith, oh, sorry, on the weekend. Zach Smith was uh, played like Zach Smith, the bad version, and got pants by Mason Cox. Buzzer rucked better than him, and he was arguably their best target up forward, given that Harry Taylor was far more quiet. So big thumbs up to the kid with the name that everybody will never forget. Wiley, I beat the buzzer. Okay, not for me second, and no question here. It's got to go to the Fremantle Football Club. Disgraceful performance two weeks in a row. I think the margin is the same, 104 points. Um, What's going on? This is Ross Lyon. You know, this is the coach who's... Teams are always so stingy about conceding scores. They've been smashed by over 100 points two weeks in a row. They started the season terribly. I thought they really got into their stride and started playing a more enterprising style and they started throwing the kids in and they looked all right. What's happened? They just seem to have lost. I mean, look, they're still playing the younger guys, but they've just lost all semblance of confidence and it seemed after quarter time against the Tigers' motivation. So... Um, I reckon their fan base would be really worried at the moment. Where where are they actually going? Are they rebuilding? 
you know, are, are they a younger side sort of trying to improve or are they still peddling the same sort of players? What do they stand for? I mean, the whole club sort of seems to have become a lot softer and a lot less focused. And I, I look, you know, sort of two years down the track and I've got no idea how they're going to look. Um, you know, Sandlins, he'll be gone by then. Um, Johnson, he'll be gone by then. You got Fife, but you can't base it all around Fife. You know, Harley Bennell comes back and plays his first game, but you know how long will that be sustained? I just, you know, and the kids have played; they show glimpses, but there's no one who I've really seen stand out and made me think. <clears throat> pardon me, is a ten-year player for the Dockers, so I think they're in a world of trouble as a footy club, and uh, they need a, a long, hard look at themselves over summer. You know, Ross Lyon up till this year had. Never had a team he coached lose by 100 points. Three times this year, 204 points the last two weeks, 100 against Adelaide and 89 against Port Adelaide. They're falling apart of the seams. I want to finish with a not hot double banger. First of all, people that simply don't watch games of football and defer to statistics, as I heard somebody talk about the Western Bulldogs versus Port Adelaide game and said Western Bulldogs were beaten and their best players were... So and so, I think they probably mentioned uh, Jack McRae, who had 41 touches. Fair enough, he got a bit of the ball. And then Jason Johannesson. Now, Jason Johannesson was one after McRae, only the second play to get these rating points above 100. He was atrocious. I'm telling you, Jason Johannesson yesterday showed a couple of things. First of all, he was selfish. Every time he got near goals, he went for a shot at goal. He kicked no goals for, ignoring good leads. He's got one of the worst left foots in the competition. Had the ball, had the ball <coughs> clear of any player and kicked it 22 metres, 15 metres into the crowd. Like, it was just his left legs for standing on. So, you know what? 27 touches. Don't just go and read the stats. My not hot is people who do that. And my not hot is Jason Johannesson, yes, and on the weekend. Well, he's got a bigger millstone to carry now. He's in the new uh, NAB Young stars ad too, so that's put a bit more pressure on. Okay, I'm going to finish this segment with a hot, and it's from that same game, finally, but it goes to the incredibly hard-working and I think often unfairly maligned Charlie Dixon. He was absolutely sensational for the power. Um, is there a harder-working key forward in the game? Uh, can't think of anyone who works harder. The amount of territory he covers, and he always gets back there and presents himself as a marking target, Someone picked me up on Twitter and said, oh, look what he was defending against. And fair enough, he had a few mismatches going on. But his work at ground level was just as impressive. And one of those critical goals, and they kicked the last five of the game, he had a hand in about three of them, I reckon. Got involved on the up wing. on the wing. With yeah, Jake a couple Nate. of handballs. And yeah. just the amount of, um, of grunt work and hard running he does, as well as being a marking target and a good kick for goal. So he's copped a bit of flack over the years, Charlie, but I reckon he's had a really good season and uh, that was just a wonderful game. Hats off to him. Loved his work all year. I couldn't agree more. On Footyology, talking top 22s. Rightio, talking top 22s. Uh, it's been an interesting concept and people have weighed in with their comments and if you want to weigh in with your comment, head to footyology.com.au and you'll see underneath this podcast there is the 22 laid out for you to ponder and uh, also a comment section where you can tell us where we've gone right or wrong or your suggestions for people in particular positions, all of which will be taken on board. So, finally, I must admit, I've had a look at our existing 22, and I'm thinking in terms of changes. The only sort of changes I can think of are guys who we have had in there already and have gone out. But I guess that's a reflection of, you know, how good a season's they're having, that someone who gets squeezed out can have one good game and it might get them back in. And that's probably the reality of the All-Australian team. It's tight for certain positions, and a single good game or a single bad game can have you in or out of the team. So... One that struck me this week, we mentioned Buddy before. He was fantastic on Friday night, you know, kicked the goal of a year. Mobile, three goals in a in a Forward tight game. Yeah. Um, was terrific. So, unfortunately, uh, I'm just looking at Tom Lynch, Adelaide's Tom Lynch, who we've got at centre-half forward, yep. and I'm thinking Buddy probably needs to go back there. Yeah, I think that's fair. You agree with that? Yeah, Tom, up to you to have a good game, last game of the year, Tom. Yep, okay. Uh, what else? Where else are you looking at and seeing potential well, Look, challenge? West Coast were brilliantly served on the weekend by Elliot Yo. They didn't win the game, but he was superb. He can 
just take a mark and read the play. He comes in, and I know he's been in the team before. Michael Hibbard misses out because the other... Oh, tough. He's only been in two weeks. Well, that's the lie of the land. The other mid-sized defenders, Doherty and Howe, were superb again on the weekend. Yeah. McGovern was great. Rance kicked a goal. Obviously, thrashed his opponent as well. And Rory Laird was excellent. So it's no like, shortage of good halfback flankers, is no, it? No, well, I'm telling you, Dylan Robertson's playing brilliantly. He yeah. considered himself unlucky. So I think Elliot Yeo for Hibbert and bad luck Michael Hibbert. That's how it falls. No, you're right. Look, the Eagles were they were pretty good, weren't they, even in defeat? And you're right, Yeo was outstanding. So uh, sorry, Pig. Um, yeah, no, I tend to agree with you on that. So the Pig out for the Yoaster. Um, so Melbourne Collingwood next week, big one for you, Pig. You can get back in this team, still time. Um, and you know that ruck, that ruck position, so finely balanced has it been between Jacobs and Ryder that mm. if one of them has a great game, surely they get back in the team. Okay, and, so I'll ask you, how was Jacobs on Friday night? Um, competitive, not not brilliant. Well, I thought Ryder was brilliant oh, in Ballarat best on ground. Yeah. Close to it, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He was great. Yeah. Two first quarter goals. Yeah, into the breeze. Yeah. Uh, absolutely smash rough head for hit outs. Yeah, I think he goes back. So we're thinking the same again. Okay, yeah, no, I agree with you on that one too. So Paddy Ryder in for Sam Jacobs. So isn't that interesting? The three ins are all guys that have been in this team previously. We Give prob- us the team. Well, we probably should look at the bench too just quickly because there's two guys on the bench who – both didn't play this weekend. So Joel Selwood, he's missed the last two games now. Does that make him vulnerable? It probably does, doesn't it? Michael Hurley uh, only missed this week but had struggled for a couple of weeks prior and we dropped him from the 18 onto the bench. So on ballers, are there any on ballers who could challenge Joel Selwood right now, do you think? You know, Seb Ross was close to best on ground again today. In fact, he was, he was excellent today, Seb Ross. In a game that wasn't a high-contact game, he got in there. Oh, I just thought he played his one of his best games ever. So He's, he's averaging very, th- averaging 30 disposals He's now. had a very good season, Seb Ross. Very mm. good. Okay, well, I'm just I'm having – I know you're sort of dubious about numbers, but I reckon for midfielders they count a fair bit. Where is Joel Selwood? He's a little bit below uh, Seb Ross. In fact, he's well down. Where is he? I can't even see him. 38. Averaging 25 disposals a week. Would Seb Ross win the St Kilda Best and Fairest? Yep. Okay. So well, a bold selection, but I'm, I'm just reckon on the interchange bench, maybe we go Seb Ross for Joel Selwood. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. Well, line through Selwood. Did you hear that of my pin? And Definitely. Ross goes in. Here, I'll do it again. <laughs> I like that. Um, all right, so four changes. Not bad at this stage. So one week... For people, oh, we'll keep this going through the finals, I reckon, won't we? Bit harsh on the sides that uh, don't play, but uh, we'll discuss that later at our production meeting. We'll have which, a team uh, of the finals, maybe. When is our production meeting? It's at six and yeah. a half minutes, uh, having a dart out in the street before we start recording. Um, all right, so I'll, I'll read through the side. The revised uh, Talking Top 22's team post round 22. From the back line, Jeremy Howe, Alex Rance, Rory Laird, the halfbacks, Elliot Yo. Jeremy McGovern and Sam Doherty. The centres, Josh Kelly, Dustin Martin, Matt Crouch. The half-forwards, Robbie Gray, Lance Franklin, Marcus Bontempelli. Full forward line, Eddie Betts, Josh Kennedy, Joe Danaher. The Rucks, Paddy Ryder, Paddy Dangerfield and Tom Mitchell. The interchange bench now is Sebastian Ross making his footyology All-Australian rolling team debut. Luke Parker, Michael Hurley and Clayton Oliver. Therefore, into the side, Yo, Franklin, Ryder and Ross. Out of the side, Hibbard, Lynch, Jacobs and Selwood. That's not a bad lineup, is it? It's fresh as a daisy. Well, your thoughts, leave a comment there on the Footyology website. Uh, we'll have another meeting about that when I can track Finey down. On Footyology, Media Watch. Okay, this is that controversial bit of the show where we talk about uh, football media and uh, drew a bit of attention last week, finally, talking about agendas in football. Uh, didn't go unnoticed by certain former colleagues, but uh, like I said, I don't think we made it personal and I think we both stand by what we said professionally. Um, but 
it's not always going to be uh, whacking former colleagues and whacking the media in general. And I do feel this week I've got to sort of wave the flag for the footy media on a pretty serious topic, and that's about accredit- accreditation, pardon me. And this first emerged when Nathan Buckley um, arced up at the press conference about the Ross Lyon rumour that Brad Hardy floated, and Bucks actually suggested that perhaps the AFL could remove accreditation for people that, uh, I think, quote, made up stories. Now, that was one thing, but I uh, he could have knocked me down with a feather when I heard the AFL CEO go on uh, Neil Mitchell during the week, and he was asked about this, and he said, I think it's a good idea. Now, as soon as he said that, I could hear a lot of the football public going, good on you, Gil, but... Let me tell you, um, jokes aside, I think it's a really serious matter and I can't quite believe that he would say that. I mean, it's a pretty slippery slope and I'll I'll tell you why. Because um, one of the biggest misconceptions I think the public at large have about football media is that they, quote, make stuff up. Now, it just doesn't happen, Finey. Why would someone invent a story when it can easily be debunked and it can cost them not only their reputation but their job? I think when people say they make stuff up, they're talking about stories that don't actually eventuate. But nine times out of ten, that will be someone who contacts the source and is given incorrect information by their source or could be something they're told at the time actually is the case, but subsequent events prove that, overtake it and prove that not to be true. Um, And there's plenty of times when people deny stories that turn out to be true. So what happens if... Um, like, for instance, some of the stuff with the Asada saga, um, including the thing about uh, the charges against Bruce Reed, the Essendon doctor, which Chip Grand in the Australian wrote that um, they were going to drop the charges, and Andrew Demetrio went absolutely feral on him. Well, lo and behold, uh, quietly several weeks later, the charges were promptly dropped. So there's plenty of examples where a story can at the time be debunked by people and, and dismissed and the person who wrote it ridiculed and then, you know, six months down the track, they're actually proven to be correct. So <laughs> they have their accreditation revoked in the meantime. What do they do then? Um, and I, I just think it's a dangerous, you know... It's got a tinge of McCarthy. Well, it has. It has. And, uh, you know, even governments don't resort to these sort of things. And, you know, nowhere is there more critical reporting done than in the political arena, but you wouldn't hear about a political journalist accreditation to cover parliament being revoked because someone didn't like a story or someone denied a story. I mean, it's just part of the part of the territory. I mean, don't you find that surprising that Gil McLaughlin would be even courting that idea? I think it was just a, a, a knee-jerk response to a knee-jerk reaction to something that a coach didn't like. If something is so you know, egregiously... Um, untrue as to cause distress or loss of income, then take it through the civil justice system. But to remove somebody's accreditation, which would be would be done, I imagine behind closed doors without that necessarily that person person having recourse for appeal or or maybe being forced to reveal his sources to maintain his accreditation. As I say. Reaches back to the dark days of McCarthyism, the anti-communist purge in America, where names were put on lists and those names would forever be black banned. Some great movies about that uh, subject Zellig? too. Uh, Zellig, one of them, yeah. And there was another one um, that Woody Allen's in too. Uh, I just can't. It was zero misstells in it. Anyway, I digress. Um, I, I just think. It's something that they shouldn't even be courting. and I don't think they are courting. Well, you know what, though? I was going to bring this up because I had never heard until a long time after the event that Michael Warner from the Herald Sun actually did have his accreditation revoked, I think, for a final series a couple of years ago because they weren't happy with stuff he'd been writing. So it's pretty... Gee, I don't know, you want to be certain that you know the person has very, very seriously abused their professional responsibilities and... This is where I've got to sort of defend most of my colleagues because I, I really can't honestly think of any single footy journo who has just literally invented a story. One of the issues, finally, I think, this is another, almost another topic, but one issue with this is that there is a, a definite demarcation between journalists 
who are employed professionally as journalists by media organisations and write about the game, and former players who are contracted by media companies, but at no stage are journalists. They have no journalistic training. And that now, as we're all aware, there's a lot of former players in the media now, that is a high percentage of them who are effectively doing the same sort of work that journalists are doing, but they haven't had that sort of rigorous training. So, look, I haven't spoken to Brad Hardy about this, and I I find it impossible to believe that Brad would have just invented that, said, oh, Russell Lyon must be talking to them. Yeah, someone would have said something to him. Now, I know Brad well. He's got great sources within the industry, and he is not the type of person to make things up. The point I was going to make was, and the difficulty can be that, and look, I might be doing Brad an injustice here too, but maybe, you know, it's possible he heard that, and without that professional journalistic training, he doesn't think, okay, that's a serious thing. I've got to go and you know, ratify that with a secondary source or give someone the opportunity to deny it before I go with it. And they're the sort of, I guess, basic journalistic functions that a professional journalist does as a matter of course. I think a professional journalist thinks through the ramifications of what they say or print, Yeah, looks at the worst case scenario and works back from there. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, the other point here, too, is the difference between electronic and written media. And I think having worked extensively in both now, I would say that it is easier to um, potentially commit a libel or you know an act of defamation in an electronic medium than it is in print because... Yeah, you can shoot your mouth off. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I'm surprised at times either of us haven't been slapped with some sort of action over things we've said. I mean, we've had the odd angry phone call from people, but in some ways it's a wonder it doesn't happen more often. But I would have thought that in a, you know, in a sport as robust as the AFL, you know, where the sort of on-field combat is sometimes mirrored off the field in the various, you know, disagreements and differences of opinion people have, that, um, you know, not being happy about a story someone has come out with uh, it's a pretty big jump from that to actually revoking their professional accreditation and denying them their um, their chance to pursue their their job. So I've got a major concern with that. And I, you know, speaking of sort of shooting your gob off, I'm hoping that's exactly what Gil McLaughlin did on the Neil Mitchell show and that the second he got off air, Patrick Keane or some Liz Lucan or some media advisor at the AFL said, no way, Gil, we're not. We're not just willy-nilly, you know, with a stroke of the pen cancelling someone's right to cover football because we're not happy with the story they write. Yeah, I think I, I really get a sense that, you know, as you said, it would have played well on the burbs. Neil Mitchell would have put it to him. I didn't hear the audio, but Neil Mitchell would well have put it to him and phrased the question in a way that uh, a positive answer, an affirmation of the question was being sought, you know, the sort of way that those things are framed and people listening, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But to me, Gillen... McLaughlin is not that sort of CEO. It's the reminds me of the previous uh, somebody who would was trying to change the course of rivers and, and mold, the, <laughs> mold the minds of the people through journalists. What Gomez? Yeah, he but was I, doing that. You reckon? Yeah, absolutely. But I just don't feel that Gill plays that game. And uh, you know, he's a fair-minded person. I don't think anybody would have their accreditation removed unless they were really nef- nefariously pumping up a story or an agenda in the media that was untrue and uh, defamatory or, or unfair to another individual in the sport or the sport itself. Can I just say, I know there's a subject you want to pursue this week. I just want to say this quickly, actually. Um, I was, since I've stopped working at The Age, I'm still having The Age home delivered, but I'm not having The Herald Sun delivered. I do read The Herald Sun online. But I'm seeing the actual print edition a lot less. And the other night I went to one of my favourite takeaway establishments, the Oasis Bakery in North Road, Ormond. should check it out if you haven't. It's fantastic. you ever been there? Been there a number of times. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, beautiful nice stuff. Tagine or Yeah, yeah. Middle Eastern food. Uh, beautiful. Anything Fresh, you want. Always. Anyway, I ordered something and I was waiting for it. And there was a Herald Sun sitting on the coffee table. So I had a read and I had a flick through the sports section. And it was great. I really enjoyed it, um, he said, sort of sounding vaguely surprised. It was full of footy stories. 
Who'd, who'd have thought? Um, and there was a, oh, I'm just trying to remember exactly what they were, but there were, you know, interviews with coaching types. Uh, there were good columns. I think David King had a, a column in there that I thought was a pretty good read about Adelaide. Um, and it was just, you know, what content there was was sort of chock full of nuts and bolts footy stuff, for stuff that we're always banging on about there should be more of, Finey. So um, I've just thought of that right off the top. But uh, well done, Herald Sun guys, because I think the, the content at the moment in terms of pure footy reporting is, is pretty good. So well done. All right, let's uh, get on to your hobby horse. You know, in the past, I've worked on production on TV footy shows. I worked on live and kicking for two years. I was in the offices of the footy show for two years. They're doing a particular segment exposed to the dynamic, and I know the dynamic of production meetings and what stories are we going to pursue. So when Chris Yaron's story was made public last week, even though it was available on a website for the last three months, but not many people go to the Christian Fellowship of Northern WA Incorporated's website. So, isn't it, Sorry, can I just chip in there? Isn't that amazing in itself, though? I know they don't, but wouldn't you have thought one person who saw that video would know someone who worked in the media and thought, gee, that will be of interest to someone. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, go on, sorry. So with that story circulating around and raising a lot of eyebrows, um, the production meeting at the footy show would have gone along the lines of, well, can we get Chris Yaron? And they probably would have tried to and mm. couldn't get Chris Yaron. So what can we do to uh, continue the headlines in something that obviously raises interest? And they go and reheat some old soup that is really old. Rod Butters and his uh, time at St Kilda and the fact that he uh, took cocaine and became addicted to cocaine and was a heavy drinker is well publicised. And it's well known because he attended a 12-step program, Narcotics Anonymous, and uh, works still heavily in that field, having family connections that require him to be fastidious in that regard as well. So he's very public about it, has spoken about it publicly, organises an annual football game between Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. He's a very public face of the fight against addiction, has been on my addiction radio program, The Right Time on a Monday, as a featured guest. So there's nothing new in the story. And why do they bring it up now? Or why? Timing, opportunism, the Chris Yaron story. Raise some eyebrows and, <clears throat> quite frankly, it's reheating old soup and it's... It's not, it's not worth any credit. It's not well done. It's not groundbreaking. It's not new. It's not informative. It, the only thing it is is timely. And for me, that gets a cross, not a tick. And I've got to say that Danny Frawley's response to it, is, which was hysterically negative and powerfully negative, and again, I heard him on 1116 SEN on the weekend, scathing of the Butters administration, blaming... Butters for St Kilda not going the extra step in 2004-2005 when they made preliminary finals. First of all, I disagree with that entirely. I, I don't think the club was poorly run off field from memory. Uh, we certainly didn't run into the same rocky shores uh, of bankruptcy that we have with other administrations. When I say we, I'm a St Kilda supporter, of course. But, gee, there was something pretty personal about the attack of Frawley on Butters and uh, one of the things I read was that he said he was lucky to play a couple of games for the reserves back in the day. I actually remember Butters playing quite regularly in the reserves, but I think there's something a little bit deeper there with Danny Frawley. I'll say this about Rod Butters. A lot of people that come out and say they have addiction do so, grab the headline, then run away and either go back to their previous behaviours or fail to continue to fly the flag publicly as public figures. Gavin Krasiska's one who has made it his life's work and Rod Butter, but he works in the industry, Gavin. So it is his life's work. Rod does not work in the industry, but he is a very public face of the fight of addiction. As I say, organises an annual annual events, is very forthcoming in talking about his addiction, and I think Danny Frawley was particularly harsh on him and unfairly so. I think there's a level of courage that makes you go public, even in retelling the same story, and he completely tore shreds off Butters, which I think is very wrong. And anybody who fights addiction and goes public would be, would be, if, would be worried, given if that's the reaction of Danny Frawley, it, it backs up the school of thought that says, I'm just going to keep it to myself. 
and it, it's too embarrassing to go public. No, it's not, and I don't think Danny did the right thing. Yeah, no, well, well spoken. Uh, I was actually sitting next to Spud when he talked about it today, and I could see how wound up he was getting about it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to buy into that one. I, a couple of things I wanted to bring up, though. One, re Chris Yaron, I was um, doing the Margaret Footy Show on Thursday night, and Jeff Garlett was one of our guests. And uh, the Yaron stuff came out when Garlett was in the green room with us talking about it. And. Um, it was. I was intrigued by his reaction. He he was so sort of relieved in a way, and he said he'd he'd met with Chris. I think two weeks previously, and he told him about it. And uh, he yeah, it was a, a sense of relief that I think it was out there, and that he was getting help, and that he'd shown this courage in. And you're quite right, you know. I mean, for someone in that sort of position to. I guess, open yourself up to humiliation and embarrassment. You know, it, it is a very brave thing to do. So, um, yeah, good, certainly good on Chris Aaron for doing what he did. Just on the butters thing about the timing, does does it annoy you? Because it's, I'll just play devil's advocate here. I mean, the footy show is hardly the first media outlet to uh, dig up an old story and, and sort of put a new top on it and and pass it off as being... News. So, I mean, why? How do you avoid that? Do you think? Do you think it's possible they were unaware that this had been out there before, or there was no, no, quite no. a cynical exercise? I think it's a cynical exercise and a touch mm. lazy. Mm. Um, yeah, there, there are other stories of powerful, shocking, incredible stories of footballers. I don't know about administrators, but footballers who played through their career. As heavy drug users and uh, and you know I know a few that are out there that have not gone I know a couple that I should say two that are out there that have not gone public mm. uh, that are never going to go public and I'd never ever suggest they should and would never ever say their names but maybe there's a story in that but not Rod Butters I can give you ten examples of public admissions by Rod Butters. Why bring it up now? I bet you wouldn't have come up if Chris Yaron's story didn't come up. Well, one thing that strikes me, I can't believe I'm saying this in a way because I've been part of the media for a long time and it sort of sounds like slightly naive, but particularly shows like The Footy Show and they, you know, those sort of big ticket um, productions, if you like, whenever there is news, it's inevitably something negative, isn't it? And it's easy for people to say, why don't you report some good news or whatever, but I've sort of gotten to the stage where I'm actually thinking that now. I think, aren't there really good stories about people sort of turning themselves, well, not just turning themselves around, but people who are making good in either their career or their life? And it's such a great game, footy, and there are so many, uh, you know, aspects of it that are positive. You know, the emergence of teams and the emergence of young players and the emergence of stars, you know, guys going from... Why can't? Why are they never as uh, sort of headline gra- headline grabbing as well, they're not. negative? They're not. They're not. Is that just about, human nature? Do you think? Well, how, you know, just look at newspapers and what they put in their headlines to sell the paper. I mean, the Herald Sun works on a rotation of um, you know terror threat, ice scourge. Oh, it, the front of the paper, yeah, no it, doubt. It's, it's fear that drives in, in, inquis, inquisition by the public, you know, wanting to know more yeah. is driven by fear. Yeah, well, don't stump me on that because once upon a time, even that would have been backed up by some informed commentary, whereas uh, two people who we don't even have to name um, are basically given a licence to do what they do because they're prepared to just pander to people's prejudices. And if they ever had to present informed uh, reason, balanced commentary, they'd both be out of a gig because they're incapable of it. We're talking about news news people, not sports people. Yeah, no, no we're talking about the front of the paper. The, I'm not going to bother the middle to, of the paper. Yeah, yeah. Thereabouts. There's um, one name's very well known, and the other one shouldn't be. <laughs> Paraphrases the first. The, <laughs> just the last word. Just the last word on this is the most ridiculous thing is that it is presented on the footy show as this breaking story. You know, a big football story. Well. It's you'll you set your own set your own um, standards and you set your own mark very low if 
you're going to sell that as a big breaking story because the whole world knows it's it's as old as Methuselah. Okay, well, uh, covered a bit of territory there again. I'm, I am really enjoying this segment. Hopefully, uh, you people out there hearing this are as well. On Footyology, Robco and Finney's Rant Off. Rightio, it's go crazy eight bonkers time. I love this part of the show. I think we all do by now. Finey, are you suitably fired up? I'm not so fired up, but I am passionate about what I'm about to say. Good, because passionate is our middle name on this show. All right, I'm going to count you in, and you're going to rant to your heart's content. Three, two, one, rant. Did I not love the game at Mars Stadium in Ballarat on the weekend? Yes, I did, because it was played outdoors in the conditions in which Australian rules football was meant to be played. Wind blowing up one end, allowing for it, kicking into the breeze, advantage coming home, can they ride it to the win? Port Adelaide defending down the grandstand side. This is football how it is meant to be played. I'm pretty sure that those forefathers of our game, Harrison and Wills and whoever else wants to lend their name to being fathers to football, didn't devise a game to be played inside a barn. They wanted it to be played outdoors. It's as stupid playing football indoors as it would be playing table tennis outdoors. So many sterile games at that Eddie Had Stadium, cold, unloving, like a mother-in-law's kiss. Inside football, yes, there is a version. It's up and down my parents' corridor with a rolled-up pair of socks or a Nerf football. Indoors, that's for lovemaking. If you want something to really love, go and watch a game of outdoor footy. The way footy was meant to be played. That's very good. I like that. That was sort of positive, too. You do you ever thought of doing some voiceover work? No. Okay. No, just, it was a good flourish there at the end. Okay. All right. Well, I'm uh, only one of us is allowed to be positive on any given uh, rant off, so I'm taking the old curmudgeonly approach as per usual and perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, all right, just socking myself up here. <clears throat> getting angrier, getting angrier. Okay, you ready to count me in? Count me in. Five, four, three, two, one, blast off. Finally, you know what it's like when you get on a plane to go on a long flight, just wanting a bit of peace, and the moment you buckle up and the old guy next to you starts crapping on with his life story and that 13-hour leg from Singapore to London just got half a day longer? Well, I know how it feels. And I didn't even have to leave my lounge room to experience it this time. It was Saturday. I'd already done my match report on the Bulldogs' port game, so I thought I'll just kick back, relax, and have a casual look at the second half from GWS against the Eagles. That was before I changed the channel and realised that some genius at Fox Footy had decided to put Jared Healy, Dermot Brereton, and David King in the same commentary box. You want paralysis by analysis? You had it. And complete deafness too. Now, don't get me wrong. Those three guys are three of the best special comments blokes in the business. Seriously. But let's be honest here. None of them are exactly short of a word. In fact, they could talk for Australia at the give me some stats and anecdote from the 1980s and an observation from a bit of play five minutes ago without drawing breath, world championships, and absolutely pissing the gold medal. Sports commentary needs to offer a bit of light and shade. Moments where either the pictures or the crowd noise do all the talking. Televised AFL has never quite got the hang of that. In fact, mention the word subtlety and the producers on 7 and Fox will think you're talking about the kid who might go at number one in this year's draft. And could you give us a bit of a spiel about his parents, his under-18 coach, and a little package of him playing for Colter Cannons to go with it? Derm, Jezza, Kingy, I love you blokes, but even you guys would admit the only co-caller you need to be teamed up with is Marcel Marceau, and even he'd feel like he couldn't get a word in. Last week I watched again the most dramatic moment in sport I think I've ever seen, when Sergio Aguero scored that last second winner for Manchester City to pinch a title from United in 2012. The great Martin Tyler was calling the action. He summed it up in one word, Aguero. If the boys at Fox had been calling it, we would have still been pondering what QPR had to do to get the game back on level terms by the time the next season started. Light and shade, boys. Light and shade. And no, I don't mean that guy who went from Gold Coast to Collingwood has a good size on him, used to play for the North Hobart Demons. And did you know I played against his uncle in the 1987 Escort Cup? I reckon that's your best ever. Really? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Okay. Liked it a lot. That Thank was you. really good. And, and it's so true. I can't remember... The baseball moment was it when Boston broke their eighty-plus year run of outs in the World Series and won it, or uh, was it? No, it wasn't last year, but it was a huge moment in baseball. And the commentator, after the winning run was scored, 
did, famously didn't speak for three minutes whilst the crowd erupted. Not one word of commentary. Just allowed the listeners and the viewers to absorb the crowd emotion. Well, some of our blokes should try it sometime. There you go. Well, that's just about all we've got time for this week. Thanks for listening. As you know, we always finish off with some obscure musical connection and uh, often have difficulty coming up with the appropriate lyrics. But finally, this week, I think I've got them. What do you reckon it is? Uh, something grungy to describe GWS's ascendancy to the throat? No, I'm thinking Bulldogs missing out in the finals. They'd be feeling pretty blue. So I'm thinking blues. I'm thinking dogs. What does that make me think? Of course, it makes me think of my favourite Cold Chisel song, Hound Dog, off the Seminal Circus Animals album. And I quote, Hump that coffin up round one more bend. Hump that coffin up round one more bend. If your head needs a bandage, try a roadhouse open sandwich. Dodge a waitress and hit the road again. I've got dog's disease and asphalt on my shoes. I've got dog's disease and asphalt on my shoes. I got the hound dog sitting on the side of the road. The hound dog sitting on the side of the road. I got the hound dog sitting on the side of the highway blues. Do you like that? Poor old hound dogs. We'll see you next week. This Crunch Time podcast, proudly brought to you by iPrimers. Make the right NBN choice with iPrimers, your NBN experts. Call 131 101.